All right, let's turn together to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. This morning we're going to read verse 6 through verse 9. Verse 6 through verse 9. Verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here this morning, grateful to be among the saints in this little corner of the earth, grateful to be a part of the great chorus all across the globe of your children who truly know you, Lord, that gather in your name to praise you, to lift up your praises, your excellencies, and to hear from you, to be your people who hear. And to gather with the saints in heaven as well, Lord, who've already gone before us and who are now praising you and giving you glory in a way that transcends what we do. Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing from you. Thank you that you have spoken through the prophets and the apostles. Thank you that we have the scriptures that not one jot or tittle can be changed, that the scriptures cannot be broken, that you have preserved your word and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the scriptures to pass away. We thank you that we can gather and learn from you. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. We pray that you would open ears that are not open this morning. We pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts, Lord, and we would hear what we need to hear, what you want us to hear, what this passage is saying. Help us not to just put our own thoughts into this, Lord. Help us to be thoughtful, but to uh, seek what you are saying and to not settle for less. Thank you that we live by hearing what you are saying, Lord, and by trusting in your promises and your grace. Lord, please transform us by renewing our minds this morning. And we pray that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Joe was down on his luck. He had lost his job. He had run out of his unemployment payments or checks that were coming to him. And he looked for a job furiously and he couldn't find any work. So he was really down on his luck. He was starting to get desperate. And a friend told him, hey, you know, I, I heard that there's a, a job opening at the zoo. I don't know what it is, but you should go check it out. Now, naturally, Joe is afraid of animals. And so that isn't appealing to him. But Joe was desperate. And so he went to the zoo looking for whatever job it might have been. And he met the zoo director when he was there. And the zoo director says, I'm sorry that the job that was open has been closed, but there's actually another job that's opened up, if you're willing. And he takes him aside and he says, you've got to understand that our gorilla recently died. And our gorilla was our most popular attraction. So what we need is someone to don a gorilla suit. <laughs> we have a really realistic looking gorilla suit. And we need you just... To go in there, it's going to be temporary until we get a new gorilla, but it's going to pay really well. And I promise you, you'll have a good time. But would you be willing to do this, to, to be the gorilla spread? And so he said, well, why not? I need money. So he goes there, and he dons the suit. He goes to the cage, and he starts acting like a gorilla. And he kind of gets into it, actually. And this goes on 
for about a week and he's really getting into it by the end of the week he's perfected what it is like to be a gorilla he's swinging from the trees he's banging his chest and the people love it one day Joe's swinging wildly from some vines he's putting on a show like no other and all of a sudden he loses control of himself and he sails through the air and lands in the lion's pen next to the gorilla pen <laughs> and the lion is in there and suddenly looks at him and Joe is frozen with fear and the lion looks at him hungrily and licks his lips and starts stalking towards him and Joe goes back up against the pen's wall and as the lion gets closer and closer Joe's afraid but he manages to cry out a prayer he says God help me help me and he starts screaming out loud the lion runs up to him and says shut up stupid or you'll get us all fired <laughs> 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 it was a counterfeit zoo <laughs> you know one of the skills that we quickly learn that we need in this life is the ability to discern between what's real and what's genuine and what's fake and what is fraudulent in this world, right? How many of you know it's a skill you need in this life? Because if you don't have that skill, you'll end up hurting yourself, right? How many of you have heard, you know that when you go online, you gotta be careful if you're gonna be going to a government website or something, because there's those websites out there that look like a government website, right? And they're fake, they're fraudulent, and you gotta be able to discern it, otherwise you'll give away all your information, your money, your identity. Or there's someone who might lie to you and say, hey, I'm really uh, selling this product. Or, hey, I'm really on your side. Or, I'm really a doctor. Or, I'm really a salesman. I'm really a real estate agent. And they're actually a phony, and they'll scam you. And we can get hurt. And if it's true in our physical lives that we need to discern between the real and the counterfeit, how much more so in our spiritual lives do we need to discern between the real and the counterfeit especially when the Bible tells us that Satan is active and he's a deceiver and that he actively pretends to be an angel of light he sends out his ministers as ministers of righteousness he's in the business of counterfeiting he's in the business of faking it he's in the business of pretending in order to get people to wrongly believe and be destroyed so how much more do we need this discernment in our spiritual lives and the book of Galatians and this passage that we read this morning is really about this issue of the real and the counterfeit the true gospel versus the false gospel and specifically here the question is who are the true children of Abraham versus who are the phony fraudulent children of Abraham that's what this passage is dealing with and what it's all about who are the true children of Abraham who is really the real deal the false teachers were saying that Paul was preaching a false gospel the false teachers that were influencing the Galatians were saying that they had the true gospel they were saying we are the true children of Abraham and the true children of Abraham are those who are circumcised and keep the law of Moses and if you're not circumcised and keeping the law of Moses, don't think that you're righteous. Don't think that you're saved. Don't think that you're in Abraham's family. Paul is lying to you. Now notice that Paul doesn't respond to the agitators by saying, you know, this whole Abraham thing is over. Forget about being a child of Abraham. It doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't say that, does he? Paul doesn't say the whole Abraham thing doesn't matter anymore. He says these men are false apostles. They are preaching a false gospel. And it is not those who keep the law who are the children of Abraham, for no one keeps the law. It is, as he tells us here plainly, those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. So Paul is directly dealing with the false teachers in this passage and what they were saying about Abraham. Clearly these false teachers were talking about Abraham and who the children of Abraham are. This morning, we're going to look at Abraham 
Abraham is first mentioned here in the book of Galatians, but he takes a central place in this book. He occupies a central place from here, verse 6, all the way to the end of chapter 4. Abraham is in view. So really, to understand the book of Galatians, we're going to have to understand Abraham. Here's the first mention of him. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. One, we're going to look at the case of Abraham, what happened with him. Secondly, we're going to look at this concept of the children of Abraham. And then thirdly, we'll close by looking at how justification through faith alone was God's eternal plan from the, bar- from the very beginning for all people. So we're going to look at those three things this morning. First, the case of Abraham. Look at verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now we're jumping right into the middle of this letter, right? It's been said that this verse is a Janus. If you know what a Janus is, a Janus was a Roman god that had two faces, one in the front and one in the back. And when when commentators say a verse is a Janus, what they mean is that the verse looks backwards and it also looks forwards. It's, It's connected with what went right before and it's connected with what goes on ahead. It finishes verse one through five, but it also opens up the next discussion of Abraham. So there's a connection here. And you'll remember from last the last couple weeks, the last five verses of chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, look what Paul says. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Paul's passionate. Paul is vehement here. And as we go on in the book of Galatians, I know we're just looking at chunks and sections. We must not forget Paul's passion and Paul's vehemency. When he says, even so Abraham believed God, he's still passionate here. He's still saying, you foolish Galatians, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So this verse connects with what went before. But now he's moving on from their experience, which is what we've been looking at. He's saying, look, Galatians, examine your own experience with faith. Did you receive the Spirit, the Spirit of Sonship, by the works of the law or through the hearing of faith? But he moves on from telling them to examine their experience and he moves to the Scriptures. And this is the most important move Paul makes because the Galatians' problem is primarily historical and theological. They're being taught something wrong about history, about Abraham, and about theology. That's their problem. Even more than them just not realizing their own experience. And so Paul's going to take them to history, and he's going to take them to Scripture, and he's going to show them what God says about justification. The Galatians were confused about Abraham because the false teachers, even though they were believers in Jesus, were carrying on the Pharisaical understanding of Abraham. The Pharisees liked Abraham, right? It's not just Christians who think Abraham is, the, is a hero. Also, the Pharisees saw Abraham as a champion and as a hero. And these false teachers, these false Christians, were carrying on the pharisaical understanding of Abraham. Abraham is a major central figure in the Bible. He's seen as a prototype, as an exemplar of a religious man, an exemplar of what it is to be in relationship with God. The Bible tells us that he was a friend of God and that he was righteous. And so the thinking is, whatever Abraham had, we want. He was a friend of God. What did he do to become a friend of God? He was righteous. What is it that made him righteous? Because we we want to be friends of God too. We want to be righteous. And it's true, my friends. If you are not like Abraham, if you don't have what Abraham had, you are not a friend of God. And you are not righteous. Can we say that from Scripture? We can. So it's very important that we understand Abraham and who he is. Everybody wants Abraham on their team. The Muslims want Abraham on their team. And this is what they say Abraham had. They say, Abraham, why he was a friend of God and why he was righteous is because he was the first monotheist. And so if you want to be like Abraham, you've got to be a strict monotheist like us. If you're a strict monotheist, you're a friend of God, right? You're in with Abraham. The Jews want Abraham on their team, of course. They said, why was Abraham a friend of God? Why was Abraham righteous? Because Abraham was the first law keeper. 
He was the first man to be circumcised and to obey the commandments of God. And so we want, we want uh, to be on Abraham's team. We also need to be circumcised and obey God if we're going to be part of his family and if we're going to be on his team. The Mormons also want Abraham. What was Abraham the first uh, to do in Mormonism? He was the first to understand the mystery of the stars and the planets in Mormonism. And so if you want to be in with Abraham, if you want to be in his family, you've got to understand this esoteric mystery of the cosmos. The Rastafarians want Abraham on their side as well. He was the first religious pot smoker. <laughs> I kid you not. What's that religion called? That's right. Rastas. Everybody wants Abraham. Now, what does Paul do? He takes the Galatians to the Torah. And he says, you want to know what made Abraham a friend of God? You want to know what made Abraham righteous? You want to know what made Abraham have a relationship with God and how we can be like Abraham and be unconnected with him? We go to the Torah, we look at the scriptures, we see what the scriptures says. What does the Torah say about how Abraham was righteous? You realize there's only one place the Torah explicitly says how Abraham was righteous. And Paul quotes it right here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. He's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. The one place where it declares how Abraham was righteous. And what does it say? Even so, Abraham was baptized, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Right? Was Abraham baptized? No. Abraham was circumcised and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. No. Abraham obeyed the commandments and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Is that, is that what it says? No. It says here in Galatians 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ and those who believe in righteousness through faith alone, here at the beginning of the Bible we have with the central figure of Abraham a perfect example of righteousness through faith alone. Isn't that amazing? What does it say about Abraham? That he was righteous through faith alone. Paul does what God told, has told people to do, and that is to look to Abraham to learn about righteousness. Isaiah 51, verse 1 and 2, God says through Isaiah the prophet, Are you wanting to learn about righteousness? Then look to Abraham, and you'll learn about righteousness. And when you look to Abraham, the one place where it says he was righteous is that it says he believed God. Robert Haldane comments that the apostle here shows that the way of justification was the same from the beginning both under the old and the new dispensations. I hope we all understand that people have only ever been righteous through faith. And it's not changed since Jesus came, right? It's not that now in the modern era we believe in righteousness through faith and now we tell people to believe in, in, in order to be saved. But that way long time ago, it was some other way that people were saved. It was by keeping the law or believing in God's this, that, or the other, and, and following his primitive commandments. It was always through faith. Now, we must stop and ask at this point, what was Abraham's faith all about? And how is Paul making the connection between Abraham's faith and the Galatians' faith? Because the Jews would res do respond to Paul this way. Okay, Paul, we grant that Abraham believed. We see that in the scripture, he believed. But you Christians say that we must believe in Christ in order to be saved, and Genesis 15 isn't about Christ, right? So they're saying, Paul, you're making a false connection here. We grant Abraham believe, but it's a false connection because you're saying in the context here we need to believe in Christ. Abraham didn't believe in Christ, Jesus. He doesn't say anything about that. In fact, if you look at Genesis 15, Abraham simply uh, is told by God, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, right? 
Look at the stars, Abraham. Your, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. And it says, Abraham believed God, and God counted it unto him as righteousness. So you Christians are pushing this too far. So the question is, when Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, or when we believe in God, is the content of our faith arbitrary? I mean, we believe in Christ, he believed that he'd have many descendants. Different content, but we both believe, and that makes us righteous. Is it just about believing in God regardless of the content? The fact that you believe when God says something, that's what brings righteousness. So if God were to say, Eli, in 20 years from now, you're going to be on the Utah Jazz team and you're going to take the Jazz to the playoffs and you're going to win. That's, impo- that's not <laughs> naturally possible. But suppose God said that and said, okay, God, I believe. Would I be righteous for believing this content? Is what makes us righteous is simply that we believe God. Or in other words, is our faith my, our righteousness? Is our faith a substitute for our, for our obedience, our moral obedience? So God says, yeah, you're all sinners who don't keep the law, but if you believe my word, I'll count you as righteous because that's a really good thing to do, right? Believing me is a really good thing to do. If you do that, I'll consider you good. Does faith become a substitute for obedience? The answer is no. As Christians, we enter no. First of all, faith is never a substitute for righteousness because the Bible teaches us that righteousness is perfect love. Righteousness is you simply being what you should be, right. And according to what is right, you shouldn't just believe what God says. I grant that that's good. You should believe what God says. But just believing what God says isn't exhausting what righteousness is, right? It's a good thing. But it's also righteous to love perfectly. It's also righteous to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Believe God all the day long, but the law still stands that righteousness is perfect love. So no, faith doesn't redefine righteousness and give us a substitute for righteousness at all. That's not what the Bible teaches. And we will also say this, that although Genesis 15 doesn't explicitly tell us about Christ, It doesn't explicitly use Jesus' name. We nonetheless hold that there is no salvation and no righteousness apart from faith in Christ. And in Genesis 15, there's more going on than meets the eye. When you read Genesis 15, don't just look for what's explicitly said. You also need to realize that there's more going on than meets the eye. There are things that are implicit there in Genesis 15. 15. First of all, when God promised to Abraham that he would have this mighty nation, his descendants would be more numerous than the stars. This is not just about having children. This is about being blessed. True or false? It's not just about Abraham having children. It's about Abraham being blessed. Right? God says, I will bless you and I'll make, your, a, make of you a great nation. This is part of God blessing Abraham. So when we read about this multitude of descendants, we should think blessing. This is about God saying, I will bless you. But here's the thing. What does blessing depend upon, according to the Bible? What's the opposite of blessing? Cursing. What does cursing depend upon, according to the Bible? Why are people cursed? Arbitrarily? Does God just kind of arbitrarily curse people because he's mean? And does he just arbitrarily bless people because he's arbitrary and nice and he just, I don't don't know, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to curse you, no reason. Cursing comes because of sin and blessing comes because of righteousness. And the ancients were not unaware of this, that blessing required righteousness just as cursing came about because of sin. And so when Abraham heard, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, he knew that that meant that the matter of righteousness had to somehow be involved and that somehow he would have to be righteous 
in order for him to be blessed. The ancients were not cavemen with clubs clawing on cave walls. These were men just like you and I, who understood, probably better than we do, this issue of blessing and curses, because they were so much closer to God's original creation, creating of the world. We can see that Abraham was not unaware of righteousness in the book of Genesis. He was a man who performed sacrifices for sin. He was a man who argued with, not, well, maybe argues too strong, but he debated with God about whether God would destroy Sodom or not, right? He said, God, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked in Sodom? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What if there's ten righteous men there? What if there's five righteous men there? See, Abraham was a man who thought about righteousness. He understood that cursing came because of sin and blessing because of righteousness. So number one, it's not just about having children. It's about being blessed. And that requires righteousness. And the second reason that Abraham uh, was believing in Christ and not simply just in God and in whatever content God said was because Abraham knew of what scholars call the Proto-Evangelium. How many of you have ever heard of the Proto-Evangelium? The primitive gospel found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that when Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned, and you can, you can know that Abraham knew this story by heart. When Adam and Eve sinned, and God cursed them on account of their sin, God did not leave mankind without any hope. But in Genesis 3.15, God promised that through the seed of the woman, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. So right there in Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning, we have the first promise of a Savior, the hope of the world. And Abraham knew this. And Noah knew this. And the believers of old knew this. And Abraham recognized that God was saying to him that this Savior was going to come through him to be a blessing to the world. So there's more going on in Genesis 15 that meets the eye. I'm going to bless you. Righteousness is going to need to be required. And it's going to be through you that the world is blessed. Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 8. And here we have Jesus' word on Abraham. John chapter 8, verse 56. John 8, 56. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind that Abraham knew him. That Abraham was not a caveman and God just spoke out of heaven and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He just believed. But that Abraham knew Christ. John 8, 56. Here's what Jesus says. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. So they got, the, they, they're seeing, what do you mean Abraham knew you? Jesus said to them, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. The Greek actually says, I am, like that. Before Abraham was born, I am. There couldn't be a more explicit statement of Jesus' divinity when he said this. But here he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That means Abraham saw into the future. He saw Christ, not only Christ, but the day of Christ, when Christ would come and when Christ would die. I think that roughly, uh, we can see roughly how Abraham would have saw Christ's day. I think Abraham saw three things. First of all, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham saw that the whole world, that, that Christ would come to bless the whole world through him. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham saw the Savior's coming would be blessing to the world by bringing righteousness and providing righteousness for the whole world. 
But secondly, Abraham saw in Genesis 17 that this blessing to the world would come by the Spirit and not by the agency of man. This righteousness and this blessing would come in a supernatural way and not in a way that human beings would have to work and would have to perform and would have to uh, provide for themselves. In Genesis 17, Abraham says, okay, the Messiah is coming to bless the world. But God says, through Isaac your seed will be called. This is a supernatural promise that God gives to Abraham, not just through any seed, but through Isaac your seed will be called. This is going to be done in a supernatural way that only I can do. So the blessing will come to the whole world through Christ. It's going to come in a supernatural way that only God can do. And then thirdly, in Genesis 22, I believe Abraham understood that the blessing would come through the sacrifice of Christ, which was pictured in the giving of his own son, Isaac's life, on the altar. You remember that God said, take your son, your only son. This is the son that he knew that Christ Messiah was coming through. And he says, go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there unto me. And Abraham, through this experience, realized that God would provide a sacrifice, right? That's what he says when the whole incident is over. He says, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And in there, Abraham would have understood, not only is the Messiah coming to bless the world, not only are we dealing with something that's supernatural and not natural, something that only God can do and human beings can't do, but we're also dealing with the Messiah's sacrificial death and his resurrection for the sins of the world. John Calvin comments, Abraham was not justified merely because he believed that God would multiply his seed, but because he embraced the grace of God, trusting to the promised mediator, whom, in whom, as Paul elsewhere declares, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So Abraham was justified through faith in Christ. God promised blessing through Christ and Abraham believed God would do it through his grace and through his power. Isn't that what happens when we believe as Christians? That we also believe God has promised blessing to us through Christ, by his grace and by his power. It's the same faith. It's the same thing. God says, I'll bless you. We know that requires righteousness. Through Christ, we know that's his sacrifice. We know it's his grace. And we know it's what he does, not what we do. So let's go back to Galatians here, chapter 3. So we've seen the case of Abraham. Paul says, Galatians, look at how Abraham was justified. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same thing. Just as you believed and were righteous, so Abraham believed and was righteous. Now look at verse 7. In light of the case of Abraham, Paul says in verse 7, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The emphasis here is on faith, contrary to what the agitators say. Who are the children of Abraham? Paul tells us it is those who are of faith. Here we're introduced to another central concept, the concept of the children of Abraham, which occupied a major place in Judaism and Christianity, and still does a major place in Judaism and Christianity. Who are the children of Abraham? Because to be a child of Abraham means that you are in Abraham's blessed family, that you are blessed with Abraham. To be a child of Abraham is equivalent to salvation. In Luke chapter 19, verse 9, when Zacchaeus finally attained salvation through faith in Christ, Jesus said these remarkable words, Salvation has come to this house, inasmuch as he is a child of Abraham. So Jesus himself equates salvation with being a child of Abraham. If you're not a child of Abraham, you're not saved. And if you're saved, you're a child of Abraham and blessed with him. We don't often think about this connection. Jesus said that there was a man named Lazarus who died 
And where did he go? He was, a, he was a saved man. He was a believer. He went to Abraham's bosom. That's right. So Jesus actually pictures heaven as Abraham's bosom. That's carrying on that Old Testament scene of returning to your father and your fathers, right? When you die, you're gathered to your father. You're gathered to the family that you belong to. And when you die, if you're the righteous and in Abraham's family, you go to Abraham's bosom. And the man in hell is not in Abraham's bosom. And he knows it because he's talking to Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, can you do something about my thirst? Notice the central place Abraham plays for the man in hell. Jesus also says that in the resurrection, in the kingdom of God, that people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and what will they do? They'll sit down with who? In the kingdom of heaven. They'll sit down at a feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you believe that that's what your future involves as a Christian? How many of you have thought about this much? That when you die, you're going to go to Abraham's bosom, and when you resurrect, you're going to enjoy a feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, of course, you can be saved without recognizing this, but biblically, there's more to salvation than just you're an individual sinner who Jesus individually saved, and that's the end of the story. And it really shows how far we Christians have drifted from the Hebrew roots of Christianity when we don't give much thought to the fact that we are the children of Abraham as believers, and we have a future with the patriarchs. That old story about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis is today not an irrelevant symbol or shadow, but that's our family story that's still going on right now and that we're going to have a conclusion uh, to as well. John the Baptist and Jesus both argued with the Jews about who is a child of Abraham. In Matthew 3, verse 9, John challenges the Jews and says, don't think that you're a child of Abraham just because your DNA is Abraham's DNA. They refused to be baptized. They refused to confess their sins and put their faith in the coming Christ. And he says, don't think you're a child of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham from places that you would not imagine. In John chapter 8, in verse 37 and verse 40, and let's go back there again. John chapter 8. Jesus was talking about Abraham, but he says more. Verse 37. John 8, 37. And here we see again that Jesus challenges the Jews who had confidence that they were the children of Abraham. They were in his family. They were the blessed ones. They were the saved. And here's what Jesus says in verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. I'm not questioning your physical lineage. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Prove that you're his children by doing what he did. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. So here Jesus says, it's not your DNA that makes you a child of Abraham, but it's whether God's word has a place in you. Whether God's word has a place in you. Whether you hate the truth or whether you believe the truth. This is what Abraham did. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham believed the truth that he was a sinner. Abraham put his trust and his hope in the Savior who would die for him and for the sins of the world. That's why Abraham was righteous and a friend of God. You're not doing what Abraham did because his, God's word doesn't have a place in you like it had in Abraham. Otherwise, Jesus says, you would believe in me. How many of you have heard of that kid's song? Father Abraham had many sons, right? Father Abraham had many sons. 
Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, we say with confidence. So let's just praise the Lord. And then what's the rest of that song all about? Imitation, right? Everyone swings the right arm together. Everyone swings the left arm together. Everyone swings the foot together. And everyone's doing the same thing. The point is, is that the family of Abraham, they are similar in what they do. They are like Abraham. And that's how you know whether you are a child of Abraham or not. Are you like him or not? Does God's word have a place in you? Do you believe what God says about your sin and about righteousness and about Christ? But I will add this, that being a child of Abraham is not simply about copying Abraham's example or bearing a resemblance to Abraham. That's not the only sense in which we are his children in that we're like him. It's not simply because we're like him that we are his children, although that's true. But it's even more than that in that the Bible tells us that when we believe in Christ, we actually are engrafted into Abraham's family because you must remember that Abraham was promised a nation by God. So Abraham was actually promised a great big family. And when you believe in Christ, you are a part of that family. So you're not just like him in resemblance. You are actually counted to be Abraham's family. Abraham is actually considered to be, and we should consider him to be, our father, our forefather. Do you believe that? That you're not just like Abraham, but you're actually a part of that family that God promised to Abraham, that promised nation. And you remember that Abraham was told that he should be circumcised and that all of his descendants should be circumcised, which would indicate that they are a part of that nation. And we learn in the New Testament that that circumcision was simply a sign of being righteous. That's all it was. A sign of righteousness through faith. And all of Abraham's family had to be Righteous. If you're not righteous, you are cut off from his family and not considered to be part of that family. But if you are righteous, if you are like Abraham, a believer and righteous through faith in Christ, then you are actually considered to be circumcised and you are counted to be Abraham's descendants by God. Thus, Paul says here in Galatians 3 verse 7, all who are of faith, he doesn't just say are saved, although that's true. But all who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, are in the family of Abraham. And notice, this isn't just about whether Gentiles can be saved and become the children of Abraham, because the Jews and the false teachers didn't doubt it that Gentiles could come in. It's all about how do you become a child of Abraham. The Jews and the, and the agitators here, they said, yeah, Gentiles, Galatians, I mean, they're talking to Gentiles here in the book of Galatians. You can be a child of Abraham too. You can be a part of God's blessed family. But you have to be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul says, no, it's those who are of faith like Abraham who is of faith that are his children. So it's not a matter of can the Gentiles come in, but how do they come in? How are they saved? And Jews and Gentiles alike are saved through faith in Christ. Now lastly, this morning, we've looked at the case of Abraham in verse 6. We've looked at the concept of the children of Abraham in verse 7. And I'd just like to close this morning with verse 8 and 9. And I'd like to talk about how justification through faith was God's eternal plan from the very beginning to bless the nations of the earth. There's nothing novel about justification through faith. Look at verse 8 and 9. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Obviously the key word in these last verses is blessed, the opposite of cursed. But the main point is still faith in these two verses that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. 
Paul's point is clearly not through the works of the law are we saved, but through faith. But what Paul wants us to see is that justification through faith is not new, but it was God's eternal purpose when he called Abraham. Paul's simply unpacking this original promise that he gave to Abraham and showing that it's about justification through faith for all nations. First of all, notice in verse 8 Paul's idea of the scripture. He personifies the scripture here, doesn't he? The scripture foresees and preaches to Abraham. Isn't that interesting? He personifies the scripture and equates it with God. For God foresees and preached to Abraham. But here in Paul's mind, there is no distinction between the scriptures and God's word. Isn't that amazing? So when we read the scriptures, we are reading the very mind and words of God. That's how Paul thought of it. Secondly, notice how justification through faith is foundational to the gospel in verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel. My friends, if you do not understand justification through faith, then you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're hearing me this morning use this phrase, justification through faith, over and over and over again, and you don't know what that means, then it's possible that you don't even know who Jesus is and what he did for you and what the good news is for all nations. How many of you know that the gospel, the good news, is that we are righteous through faith alone in Jesus Christ? It's nothing else. And you can preach about Jesus all day long. If you miss that understanding and that truth, you do not have the gospel. You do not know what the good news is. Justification is foundational to the gospel. And thirdly, notice how the gospel was preached to Abraham in this statement, all nations will be blessed in you. Now, how many of you see the gospel in that statement? Paul, preached, Paul says that, that, this, the, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying this, all nations will be blessed in you. Now, I don't know about you, but it's kind of hard to see the gospel in that phrase. Justification through faith in that phrase, right? And yet Paul's mind was so attuned to justification through faith that he sees the good news of the gospel here in this phrase. And I believe that the more attuned our minds are, the more we will see justification through faith everywhere in the Bible. And we realize, you know, the Bible doesn't make everything explicit for us all the time, right? The Bible doesn't always take our hand and explicitly tell us, oh, and this means this, and this means that, and by the way, let me just tell you exactly what this means. The Bible requires us to read it thoughtfully, to read it reflectively, to realize that when God uses words, he often loads those words with, with implicit understanding. Like the word curse is implicitly loaded with the idea of sin. Or the word blessing is implicitly loaded with the idea of righteousness. Don't read the Bible without being thoughtful. Don't just read the Bible and say, if it doesn't say the word righteousness, it's not, he's not talking about righteousness. If it doesn't say Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ isn't in the chapter, right? I hope you don't read like that. But you should be reading thoughtfully, saying, what is the implications or the presuppositions of this word? Why, what, what is required for this to be here? or for this blessing to take place. And so while we wouldn't think of this as the gospel, Paul sees it. All the nations will be blessed in you. We see the scope of the gospel, that righteousness through faith is for all nations, and it's God's intention to send that message out to all people, as we see in the New Testament with the Great Commission. But secondly, the key here is how the nations are blessed. And it says all the nations will be blessed, and here's the means, in you. All the nations will be blessed in you. And that's the key where Paul saw justification through faith. Because when you look at the context here in the book of Galatians and how Paul speaks about all the nations being blessed 
in Abraham, there can be no doubt that what Paul is seeing here in this statement is a reference to none other than Jesus Christ, the promised seed and the promised Messiah, who would come through Abraham to bless the world. That is, to remove the curse, because the opposite of the of the blessing is the curse, and the opposite of the curse is the blessing. But that in Abraham, that is, in his seed, the nations would be blessed because the Messiah would come to crush the serpent's head by having his own self crushed on our behalf. And that is what Paul goes on to say here in verse 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, which is what we're going to look at next week. That the whole world is cursed but that Christ redeemed us. Look at verse 13. Here's how the nations are blessed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is, he brought blessing to us, having become a curse for us. He brings blessing to us by taking away our curse, by becoming the curse for us. What a Savior. What an awesome thing for someone to do, especially when you consider that that curse was deserved. That curse was something that should be upon us. But in God's great love, he didn't have to do this, but he promised a Savior, and Christ came and took the curse. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. For there on the cross, Jesus bore our sins, as we know. Jesus died in our place and paid the penalty that we deserve and bore that curse so that we could be blessed. Look at verse 14. Why did he die? In order that in Christ Jesus. Notice the phrase, in order that in Christ Jesus. That's the seed of Abraham. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations or the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit of Sonship through faith. So basically, this is Paul's commentary on Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. All the nations will be blessed in you. And what Paul sees there is the implicit gospel of Christ's death on the cross and justification through faith in Christ's death. That's how Paul was always thinking. May we also read the Bible and see where others don't see the good news of salvation through Christ. Josh Moody says, Perhaps you feel that your being righteous is about as likely as a man bearing a child at 100. How many of you sometimes feel like you're not righteous? You know, How can I be blessed and go to heaven? How can I have eternal life? How could I, a person like me, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven? Don't you think I'll be kicked out or at least put at the back of the table, the end of the table on the other side? How many of you feel worthy to sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the point here, brothers and sisters, is that it's not about being worthy, because Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob weren't worthy either. It's not the worthy table. It's the table of the righteous through faith. That's the table, amen? And Josh Moody says, But if you believe, God's righteousness will be given to you just as it was given to Abraham. And so here's the bottom line, friends. You are either blessed with Abraham through Christ. Notice verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham because he himself was blessed through faith in Christ. And you're either blessed with Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, you're not trusting that you're worthy. You're not trusting that you're good. You, like Abraham, are putting your faith in the promised Messiah who will take away your sins and bless you. Or you're cursed because you are not like Abraham. God's word does not have a place in your heart and you hate the truth that you're a sinner and you refuse to put your faith in the grace and power of God through Christ. That's your only two options. You're either blessed with Abraham or cursed. You will either sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or be cast out into outer darkness, Jesus said. And it's faith that makes the difference, not your works. I love how Abraham is described in verse 9. 
Abraham the believer. That's how he is defined. That's the most important thing to know. Whenever you from now on think about Abraham, think Abraham the believer. That's what summarizes and captures the essence of who that person is. Abraham the believer, not Abraham the doer, the mystic, the social justice activist, the Republican, the theologian, the Mr. Nice Guy. That's not what he is. He's Abraham, not the monotheist, not the circumcised lawkeeper, not the esoteric mystery guy, not the pot-smoking religious guy, but Abraham, the believer in Christ. How about you? Justin, the believer. Right? Jonathan, the believer. Are you like Abraham? Brothers and sisters, Christianity is ancient and it's not novel. Its roots go back to Abraham and even before him. As believers in Christ, we are not just saved individuals, but we become a part of that old family of Abraham that God promised to him. We become heirs of the same promise. We become blessed with him and we ourselves become a blessing also to the world because we bear the good news of Christ who is the ultimate blessing of the world. There's a lot of people in gorilla suits these days. There's always been. People that think they are the true children of Abraham. People think that they are the true friends of God. People who think that they are the really righteous ones in the earth. But it's not that they're in gorilla suits because they are not believers in Christ like Abraham. They are not those who are faith. If they are of, works, of the works of the law, you can be sure, no matter how much they talk about Abraham and God, they are in gorilla suits. For the true children of Abraham, as Paul tells us, are those who have trusted in the grace and the power of God. So let us hold fast our hope, like Abraham did, without wavering, and continue to trust in Jesus Christ, not in our own righteousness, but in what Jesus has provided for us through his sacrificial death and the blessing that comes to us undeservedly through faith. And let us continue to give in this way all glory to God and strip all men of boasting. And I'll just close with this familiar line. Ye seed of Israel's chosen race, ye ransom from the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have reached out to this sinful world to bless undeservedly. Thank you for the case of Abraham. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who you promised would come to bring that blessing. And thank you for opening our eyes. And by your Holy Spirit, allowing your word to have a place in our hearts, Lord. May your word always have a place in our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not a believer like Abraham, I pray that this morning they would consider Abraham's case and, Lord, that they would become part of the family through faith. I pray that they would realize their sin, that what they deserve is cursing, and that they would put all of their hope in Jesus Christ. May this be a day where people change and are transferred out of the cursing to the blessing through faith, Lord. I also pray for every believer here, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the family of God. I thank you that we are blessed and that we are friends of you, Lord, and that we are righteous. And I pray that we would be a light in this world and that we would proclaim in this world to those around us who don't know the way to be blessed through Christ by faith alone. Thank you that it's about what you do, not what we do. Thank you that you get all the glory, Lord. We're excited to, to one day be with all the family together. 
in praise. Thank you for this time, Lord. Please take this word and put it into our hearts, and please be glorified through it. Lord, may we have a song in our hearts as we go out throughout this week, Lord, and rejoice at what you've done for us and what our awesome future is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.